Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, if you're new to the Bible, Psalms, the Psalms are right in the middle of the Bible. You can pretty much open up any copy of the Bible and you'll find the Psalms. And if you go to the second Psalm, Psalm number 2, you'll find 12 verses that we are going to be studying this morning. So please follow along as I read, and then we're going to explore this psalm together. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in, them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Father, we ask that as we come into this Word today that You will speak to us, that we will experience Christ through this, that we will be brought near to Him, that we will be encouraged in our faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A man and his son were on a skiing vacation in Italy, and as they were on their way down, a blizzard hit, came out of nowhere. They lost their way and accidentally started hiking down the wrong side of the mountain. They were lost in this blizzard. They were lost for 11 days, and their family and their friends who were looking for them figured that they were dead. However, on day one of being lost, the man and his son found a little crevice, just a few feet high, tucked way back in a rock. There in that crevice, they were able to find warmth, safety, and comfort, and protection until they were found. I want to speak to you this morning from this psalm under the title, A Refuge in the Storm. A Refuge in the Storm. You know, some of you come in here so beaten up from the week. Some of you come in here so discouraged by your sin. So deflated by persecution or rejection. People wandering away from Jesus. So disillusioned 
by the violence in our city, in our world, in our homes? Why is the world so crazy? Well, that's the question that the psalmist is asking as he begins this psalm. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? This morning we take a detour from Jeremiah. We're here in this psalm. It's written by David. The text is ancient Israel. And Israel at this time, while David was their king, was a very tiny nation. Israel has always been a very tiny nation. A very tiny nation surrounded by very powerful nations. So placing this in its context, just south of Israel would have been the powerful nation of Egypt. To the west, to the north, would be the empires of Babylon and Assyria that would rise up. Not to mention Israel itself was a lush, green, well-trafficked trade route that all the peoples of the known world would travel through. Meaning this little nation of Israel was under constant threat of attack. And they're trembling, they're concerned, they're worried. As it seems that not only are they under this threat of attack, but in addition to that, the world around them often hates them, is often plotting against them, is often scheming against them. And so they ask this question, why do the nations rage? We are the people of God. To us belongs the kingdom of God. Why is the world raging against us? Why is it so hard for us if we are his people? Well, in some ways, this is a very welcome and fitting detour from Jeremiah. This psalm is going to frame the rest of Jeremiah. Because what we see in the rest of Jeremiah as we get back into that next week is sort of the smackdown of all of God's enemies. Why is it that these people are plotting against Jeremiah, and how is it that God is just going to bring along their judgment? Well, we're going to see it here in this psalm. But not only Jeremiah, it also frames all of the New Testament. This is one of the most quoted psalms in the entire New Testament. It frames the theology of the New Testament, our understanding of who we are as God's people and what he's doing in this world. And therefore, it becomes extremely, extremely rich and helpful for us as we apply it to our life today. So let's together focus on this. Is the mic going in and out? No? All right, if it does, just let me know. For some reason, I feel like it does, but it might just be all in my head. Is it just in my head? All right, my head case. There are four stanzas to the psalm. Let me just kind of break down the flow of it for you, and then we're going to use that as our outline as we look at the psalm today. There's four simple stanzas. The first one uh, we, could, we could call simply this, the world plans to destroy. And then the, the final three stanzas are under this heading, God plans to win. And I'm going to call the other three stanzas God's power. That would be number two. Stanza number three would be God's promise, and stanza number four would be God's 
provision. So let's look at it. What is our hope? What is our refuge in the storm? Well, first let's know that the world plans to destroy. In verse 1 and 2, we see these rhetorical questions. Why do the nations rage? And why do the peoples plot a vain thing? As the verses go on in verse 2 there, there are these four nouns that are used to describe the same people. Nations, people, kings, rulers. These are describing the influencers of society. The leaders, the governors, the kings, the rulers. But not just simply the influencers, but also the citizens, the peoples. In the New Testament, there's a nickname that is used for the people described here, and in the New Testament, the nickname is the world. The world. Why does the world rage? Why does society around us rage is the question that's being asked here. Well, why is it? The answer is given given to us in verse 3. This is what they're saying as they rage. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, these are people outside of Israel talking of Israel and therefore the God of Israel saying, let us disconnect from them. Let us break apart these bonds. Let us get out of these cords that we are wrapped up in. Let us have freedom. Well, this is why they're raging. It's because the world wants freedom from God. Who are they raging against? Well, look at verse 2. They're raging not just simply against Israel. They're not raging just simply against you, but they're raging in verse 2 against the Lord and His anointed. The point is this. Society wants to be free from God so that they can sin. Society wants freedom from God so that they can enjoy sin. And as a result, society is raging against God. There's this direct raging that happens. As society looks at God and says, no, we want nothing to do with you. I think of in the late 1800s, Nietzsche, a philosopher, he coined this term, God is dead. Well, what he meant by that was that our understanding of God, the construct of God that we've always believed in is no longer something, according to him, that we can believe. So therefore, this idea of a transcendent God who we submit to is no more. The application then for us is to be our own God, is to find our own way, to create our own morality. And so you hear people today say things such as, this is my truth. Your truth, but not my truth. As if we are our own God. This is right right for me. It might not be right for you, but this is right for me. Have you ever heard anybody talk like this before? There's a young woman that I know. She has right here tattooed... I've chosen to believe in me. I read that and I thought, ooh, 
Boy, that would be depressing. Like, there's just not much to believe in. (laughs) But this is society, family, raging against God, casting off their cords, casting off these rules and these, these, these traditions and these values that they believe are hindering them from living the life that they want to live. They rage against God. The world rejects God. Now, what happens then when his people proclaim his word? If they're raging against him, and you got somebody coming along who's proclaiming God's word, who do you think they're going to rage against? His people. Us. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to even preach through the book of Jeremiah is because I feel like we're living in a world that's increasingly hostile toward God's people, raging more and more against those who proclaim the truthfulness of his word. And I think in some ways we are finding a lot of similarities with Jeremiah. And I think our kids and our grandkids might find a whole lot more similarities with Jeremiah. Look, what if you didn't get a job because of your faith in Jesus Christ? What if you didn't get that promotion because of your faith in Jesus Christ? What if you had a spouse leave you because of your faith in Jesus Christ? What if you got locked up because of your faith in Jesus Christ? Well, this has been the reality for many, many Christians, for all of Christian history. Why do the nations rage? It's because they want to be free from sin. Now, that's sort of a direct raging against God in this form of persecution. But there's also somewhat of a, what I'll call an indirect raging against God. I'll give you a couple examples. Nations going to war with each other for greedy gain, for wicked purposes, to get territory, to get resources. I'll give you another example. Street violence. Somebody going to war with another individual out there for territory or to get even. Wicked purposes. Or a husband and a wife violently screaming at each other. Or at their children. Their children then in turn treating others like trash. Is this also raging against God? I want to say, yeah, it is, indirectly, meaning they don't realize it. They're not saying, hey, God, I I hate you. I mean, they might actually call themselves a Christian. That's the crazy thing. But R.C. Sproul, he's right when he says, all sin is cosmic treason. All sin is raging against not just that individual that you were beefing with, but raging against God. You tracking with me? You guys are awfully quiet this morning. Except for uh, baby in the back. I've got my amen corner. We directly rage against God and we indirectly rage against God. Listen, what happens if you steal from another human being? Well, you're required to give that back with some restitution. What happens if you take another human being's life? Well, your life is required. I mean, if we sin against each other, there are clear, as we've kind of understood it probably, 
biblically, but also in society as a whole, there, there are clear ramifications to our offense against others. What if we offend God? What if in our offense of another, we are rebelling against God? We're sinning against God. David said, it's not against these people that I've sinned, but it's against you and you alone that I've sinned. And I think David's right. I think sometimes we are much more concerned about each other than we are about God. We're much more concerned about each other finding out about our sin than we are concerned about the fact that God saw all of it. And you have assaulted God. You've taken the cords and you've thrown them off. You've plotted in vain. You've raged against God. Why? Because you want your freedom to sin. Well, the world plans to destroy. Secondly, here's the big, second big heading. God plans to win. The world plans to destroy God plans to win. I'm going to break these three stanzas down into three different parts here. First, we see God's power in stanza two. God's power to win. I don't tell many people this because it's embarrassing. But for two years, I played college basketball. Why is that embarrassing, you ask? Because we were terrible. No, terrible is not the right word. If there's a word worse than terrible, we were that. Did you ever win a game? Nope. Not in college. I think a high school beat us one time. <laughs> we were bad. Um, I, this past spring, I met a guy, and he was talking about growing up in Florida and some different things, and, and uh, he was talking about this game that he went to when he was in high school like 20 years ago, and uh, how bad this team, certain team was that he watched play. Now, I had hoped nobody would ever remember my college basketball team. <laughs> this guy was at one of our games. <laughs> now, let me tell you about this game, how bad it was, all right? So we were this tiny little school, and we were going up against this powerhouse. They had two dudes over seven feet tall. We were small. Um, and they were out, they had more talent than us, they had more history than us, their bench could beat us, all right? But that's all normal, that's fine, that is what it, it was, what it was, right? What made this game in particular, in particularly so incredibly uh, terrible was that my coach, who was an idiot, I don't know if I can say that in the pulpit, but he was an idiot, all right? Let's just be honest. My coach had a meeting with their coach the night before our game, and he trash-talked him. No, my coach trash-talked their coach and uh, warned him and said, you better get your team ready because we are going to come out and crush you. So he comes back all big and bad. He's like, this is what I just told the coach. We were like, why did you do that? Like, we were hoping they would go easy on us. You know, like, let us play their JV squad. They came out like guns blazing. They crushed us. They crushed us. And so, as this guy that I'm talking to, uh, that I met, as he's telling me this, he's cracking up. He's laughing. Well, look at the text, all right? 
they're plotting against God. They're raging against God. Look at the second stanza of verse 4. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He who sits in the heavens sees what they're doing. He hears their trash talk. He sees they're plotting and they're scheming and they're in the locker room coming up with all these sweet plays. And he's laughing. Now, the difference is this. They're not even on the same court. The Lord is in the heavens and does all that he pleases. And here are these people on earth who are scheming and plotting against him. And the Lord laughs, according to verse 4. Like a little man in a MMA cage with a big dude. Doesn't have a chance. Like a child planning her own trip to Disney World. It's all plans that are in vain. Like my coach trash-talking this other coach and then coming together and making plans on how we're going to actually beat them. It is all in vain. And it's sad, yet at the same time, it's ironically laughable. We can scheme against God. We can mock God. We can plot against His people. You can figure out ways to excuse your sin and get away with it for your, maybe for the rest of your life. You can pretend with other people at church. Listen, family, God will not be mocked. And this verse says that God has fury, wrath. He will not be mocked. He sits in the heavens and he laughs at them. He holds them in derision. He will speak to them how? In his wrath. We see the, I gotta turn there. You can just stay where you're at, but let me turn to Revelation 4. We see the fulfillment of this, the ultimate fulfillment of this in Revelation 4, uh, or, or 6 rather, verse 15. He says, Then the kings of the earth, that's an allusion back to Psalm 2. The rulers, the governors, the people, the kings of the earth, he says, the great ones, the generals, the rich, list, all of them. They hide themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they're calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand. One preacher that I love, he said that you don't understand that grace is amazing until you know the wrath of God. God is a God who hates sin, and God is a God who hates the sinner. He hates the one who rejects him. And his judgment and his wrath is burning hot and it is coming. There is a day when it is going to drop and it is going to be so horrifying in that day. The picture that we have is that there will be these people on earth who say, please let the mountains fall on us so, to, to hide us, to protect us from the one who we are now glimpsing who is seated, seated on the throne. The lamb who was slain has wrath against sinners. 
Under this same heading in the third stanza, we see God's promise. Now, put yourself in ancient Israel in the context. You're hearing this, you're reading this, you're getting some hope, like, okay, there's nations raging against us, but there is one who's going to come at some point and bring judgment and wrath. But they might ask, David, how do you know this? How do you know that this is true? How do you know that we are at some point, in some way, going to stand against the evil of this world? Well, this is where God gives a promise to David. Listen, people will fail you. Look at each other. You're going to fail each other. People, I, I will fail you as a pastor. I probably fail at least one individual in this church every week. So if you ever write me an email about, Pastor, you failed me. Yeah, I, I told you I would. I mean, I can recommend like three or four churches that are better than ours. <laughs> Listen, people will fail you. All right? People will fail you. Try to lean on an individual. They will fall over. But there is this old saying, and I love it. He says, you can't break God's promises by leaning on them. God's promises can take all of your weight. We can fall into God's promises and know that God's promises are good. They will last. God is a promise-keeping God. And God gives a promise to David. So we see here in verse 7, he says, I will tell of the decree. This is David talking. I'm going to tell you about the decree that God gave. The Lord said to me this, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. God has given a promise to David, and that promise is an eternal throne, a land from one end of the world to the other end of the world. The whole earth will be under the king of David, under his throne, under his reign. Now, let's fast forward, because clearly this doesn't apply, does it, to the person of David because he died. So how can there be a king that has a worldwide reign that is eternal? Well, at Jesus' baptism, a voice thundered from heaven, this is my son. This is my son. This is my son. And Jesus was in the line of David, meaning Jesus has the legal right to the throne of David. Jesus can legally sit on that throne and call himself the king in the line of David. In the book of Romans, in chapter 1, or chapter 4 rather, God declares Jesus to be his son. He is the one who has not made himself the son, but he is the eternal son who's declared to be the son. My simple point is this, Jesus has the legal and the spiritual right to the throne of David. But someone might ask, well, hold up, Jesus died as well. So how can Jesus then be this king who sits on this throne and reigns in this way? Well, in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, Psalm 2 is quoted, and it says that this is fulfilled not in the birth of Jesus, nor in the ministry of Jesus, nor is it fulfilled at the crucifixion of Jesus, but this is fulfilled at the resurrection of Jesus. 
which means when Jesus rose from the dead, he was crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords, like a prince who's always been the heir to the throne. He's always got that power eternally. At his resurrection, now he is crowned the King of David, the one who sits on the throne, who rules all. Now, Jesus is raised to be the judge. The judge of the living and the dead, it says. But he's not just simply raised to judge. Jesus is raised to save. And that leads us to our final stanza here. In verse 10 through 12, we see God's provision. God's provision. Now, Jesus comes as the Savior, and God's provision begins in these three verses with a warning. And let me illustrate this before I get into it. Captain on a ship, dark night, he sees off in the distance some lights flickering. So he gets on the radio, and he commands, alter your course, 10 degrees south. A command comes back which says, alter your course 10 degrees north. Well, the captain is infuriated. He gets back on the radio and he says, alter your course 10 degrees south. This is the captain. The voice comes back, alter your course 10 degrees north. This is a lighthouse. Listen, you get a warning from a peer like that, you say, hey, how dare you? How dare you warn me like that? How dare you threaten me in this way? But when you get the light of the world who gives you a warning, it ain't a threat that, that's just coming from a peer. This isn't just some hot, hot, hot-headed God who's just out to get people. No, listen. When you get a warning who's coming from the light of the world, this warning is an act of love. Let me give you three big truths here. First, God's warnings are love. Look at verse 10. We see a warning. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Yes, it's a warning, but it's coming from the light of the world. Alter your course. Don't think that you can continue in the way that you are going. And where do you find life? Second big truth in verse 11, submission to Jesus is life. Submission to Jesus is life. Look at what it says. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Now, I picture like the Godfather here in this moment as he demands that people get on their knees and kiss his ring. But again, friends, this ain't just a peer who's demanding you to pledge your loyalty to him, another human being. No, this is the one who is crowned king of all. This is the Lord of lords. This is the light of the world. And he is demanding that you get on your knees and submit to him. That you turn to him. That you kiss 
his ring, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Yes, it's a warning, but this warning comes to us as love because in this warning is an offer for life. We find life as we submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, you thought that sin would bring you freedom. You, you thought you could just kind of get out of these cords that, that have been trapping you in this life, this religious life. And man, I see the way the world lives, and I see the way society lives, and I see what's good on the internet and on the uh, TV and movies and in the music. And I just want some of that. And so if I could just get away from God for just a day, I could be free and enjoy the world. If I could just have five minutes, that's all I need. Five minutes, nobody looking, all eyes closed, and I'm going to sin. I'm going to delight in my freedom. What you have discovered is there is no freedom in sin. Are you tracking with me? Is anybody tracking with me? There is no freedom in sin. Sin brings bondage. Sin brings death. There is no joy in it. There's no happiness in sin. Those, those moments of pleasure are gone and you're left with nothing. Listen, your home is broken because of sin. You can't raise kids because of sin. I know people out here whose kids are starving and they won't feed them because they're using their money to buy drugs. Oh, you say, well, that's an extreme example. Look at your own life. How has sin taken your attention off of what you ought to be loving? of who you ought to be loving. And instead you say, shut up and you serve yourself. You can't be a good spouse with sin. You can't be a good worker with sin. How can you show up every day at your job at 7 a.m. if you're living a life of sin? You can't. Listen, people lose jobs because of sin. Your, you, your, your life is spiraling because of your sin. Oh, you thought there was freedom there. You see, you see the, tricky, the, the tricky nature of the devil. The world believes that they can shake off God. They rage against God so that they can be free to embrace their sin and what they find is suffering and what they find is pain. But what we have in Christ is provision. This warning comes as the greatest grace you've ever heard. Life, wholeness, happiness in Jesus Christ. Look at the provision. That last line of the psalm, he says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Listen, some people think of Jesus as their enemy. You are no match for him. The Lord is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. And when we plot and we scheme and we think we can get around, listen, he laughs. Some people think of Jesus as their homeboy. 
Friends, he is not your equal. You do not respect him. Listen, I don't submit to my equals in the way that I am called to submit to Jesus Christ. I don't submit to my homeboys in the way that I am called to submit to Jesus Christ. He is our friend, but he is the king. He is the Lord. He is the ruler. He is the judge. He is the Savior. And listen, He is your refuge. Do you know that Jesus Christ is the safe place? Are you going to Him for safety? When you're feeling the pain and the chaos of the world around us, and you're longing and running to something to provide comfort, do you go to Jesus for safety? Run to Him. Family, get in Him. Find your place in Him. Listen, the storm that we see here is not just simply the craziness of the world around us. But the greatest storm is the wrath of God. But how wonderful it is that God in His grace and mercy for us has provided in Himself, in Jesus Christ, a safe place, a refuge that we might run to. Let me close this psalm with two simple applications. Number one, we see comfort here for God's people. We see comfort for God's people. Oh, faithful ones, listen. He will not lose. Citizens of God's kingdom, listen, the kingdom is coming. I know it doesn't look that way. I know it doesn't feel that way. But His promises are good. You are on the right side of history. And one day it will be physically established on earth. Comfort for God's people. And secondly, we see here an invitation for rebels. An invitation for rebels. Now this I find to be the incredible twist in Psalm 2. Like yeah, I think in some sense reading this comfort for God's people is taken as a given. What I find to be a surprising and gracious twist is an invitation for God's enemies to come. Listen, we are not the faithful of God. We were the enemies of God. And we were invited to come. All of God's enemies are invited to come. This isn't just simply giving the invitation for those who are part of His kingdom right now. They're it's, it's, it, the invitation is given for those who are raging against Him to come. And what they are told is that you will be blessed by hiding in Jesus. You know, in the ancient world, the great kings would slaughter the lesser kings who opposed them. But this great king 
invites the kings who have opposed him to come. To come and to find in him a refuge, a hiding place from his coming judgment. I tried to shake him off, but he invited me in. I tried to live without me, but he wooed me, and I came. I tried to live apart from him, but he enticed me. I tried to hike down the other side of the mountain, but he brought a storm into my life, and that storm drove me to this refuge, and I have found a refuge in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to hide right there in him. What a refuge he is. I thought I was dead. I thought this blizzard was going to kill me, but I found warmth, and I found protection, and I found safety in Jesus Christ, and so I will be found in him. And family, I pray that that would be your declaration this morning as well. That I am found in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this moment that we've had to come into Psalm 2 and to hear from You. Father, we ask that as we find ourselves in Christ that we will be reminded every day, 24 hours of the day, 60 seconds of every hour, that we are safe in Christ. God, help us to hate our sin. Help us to find life in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.